Welcome back to Gray Matters, the podcast of the Seaboard and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State. I'm Jace Lington. This episode is another discussion from our recent conference on the future of Chevron deference. First, we will hear from Judge Chad Radler from the United States Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, introducing our panelists. Thank you to the Gray Center for inviting me. I will say that the center is a real wonderful legacy and tribute to Ambassador Gray, who we all miss and who there are many very nice things to say about. The very short story I have is as a second or third year lawyer, uh, Ambassador Gray came to Columbus to give a talk and I managed to track him down and uh, chat with him for a few minutes and he could not have been kinder uh, to a brand new lawyer who knew nothing about the presidency or counsel of the president but had lots of questions and uh, I always look so fondly on that interaction with him so we all miss him and it's a privilege to be a part of the center's programming today. So Judge Mady this morning had a, a really wonderful opening referring back to 1984, the year of Chevron, and sort of looking forward to today. As a young boy growing up in a small town in Michigan in 1984, I thought the only thing that year could be known for is the Detroit Tigers winning the World Series. Uh, so if uh, Chevron is overturned next year, I also hope that's a return for the Tigers uh, to the World Series in 2024. But it has been almost 40 years. Uh, it's a long-standing precedent, and I think we're all quite eager to see what the court does with the cases next year. And I'm just so fortunate to have four experts, and I really mean that experts um, in the area of administrative law and the separation of powers. And so we're really in store for a wonderful discussion. I'm going to introduce them all now, and then we'll start with some opening remarks and then some questions. I'll introduce them in alphabetical order, which is also going to be our speaking order. Aditya Bamzai is a professor of law at the University of Virginia. His work on the development of American administrative law has been published in the Yale Law Journal, the Harvard Law Review, and various other journals. He's a co-author of the forthcoming ninth edition of the casebook, Administrative Law, the American Public Law System, Cases and Materials. From 2019 to 2021, he served as a member of the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board. Before entering academia, academia Aditya was an attorney advisor in the Office of Legal Counsel at the U.S. Department of Justice. He was a law clerk to Justice Antonin Scalia of the U.S. Supreme Court. And I have to selfishly say, most importantly, a law clerk on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals to my colleague, now Chief Judge Jeffrey Sutton. And he's a graduate of Yale University and of the University of Chicago Law School. Jonathan Masur is the John P. Wilson Professor of Law at the University of Chicago. He's a graduate of Stanford University and Harvard Law School. He clerked for Chief Judge Marilyn Hall Patel of the United States District Court for the Northern District of California, and for Judge Richard Posner of the United States Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit. He joined the law school faculty in 2007 and served as Deputy Dean from 2012 to 2014. Professor Masur is the author of Patent Law, Cases, Problems, and Materials, an open source patent law casebook, and also the author of Happiness in the Law, which I hope is nonfiction. <laughs> and he's served as a director of the Wachtell Lipton Program in Behavioral Law, Finance, and Economics since its founding. Ellie Nakamani is a law clerk at Covington and Burling in Washington, D.C. He recently completed a clerkship with Judge Stephen Menashe of the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. Between graduating from law school and starting his clerkship, Ellie was a senior research fellow, as mentioned, here at the Gray Center. 
He graduated magna cum laude from Harvard Law School, where he served as editor-in-chief of the Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy. Prior to law school, he served as a speechwriter to the U.S. Secretary of the Interior and as a domestic policy aide in the White House Office of American Innovation. Victoria Norris is the Ralph V. Whitworth Professor of Law at Georgetown University. Her most recent book is The Impeachments of Donald Trump, An Introduction to Constitutional Argument. She's also published widely on the power of the president and the separation of powers, including Reclaiming the Constitutional Text from Originalism, The Case of Executive Power. She's a co-author with William Eskridge and Abby Gluck from Yale of the most up-to-date casebook on legislation, statutes, regulations, and interpretation, legislation and administrative administration in the Republic of Statutes. Uh, in 2015 to 2016, she served as chief counsel to the vice president of the United States. He's gone on to do other things since then, as have you. Uh, prior to that, she served as an appellate lawyer in the Justice Department and special counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee. She's a graduate of Berkeley Law School and a former law clerk to Judge Edward Weinfield of the Southern District of New York. So as I mentioned, it's a terrific panel. I'm gonna give them all a few minutes at the beginning to uh, give us some sort of organizing thoughts and then we'll do some, some Q&A. So Dietrich, you wanna start us off? I'm honored to be here with you and with such great co-panelists. I'm gonna start at the beginning, which for me as a failed philosophy undergraduate means Aristotle. <laughs> There's a claim, it's often attributed to Aristotle that nature abhors a vacuum. And here's a legal analog to the principle, which is that legal doctrine abhors a lack of adequate justification, or what might be thought of as a vacuum of justification. Let me explain. When Chevron was decided, the opinion contained a justification for the seemingly simple, straightforward, two-step process that the court announced. The court said that federal judges have no constituency and have a duty to respect legitimate policy choices made by those who do. And there's similar language in the opinion along these lines. But not everyone believed that Chevron ever announced a simple two-part test. Uh, consider Justice Breyer's 2013 concurrence in City of Arlington versus FCC, which explained that, quote, the existence of statutory ambiguity is sometimes not enough to warrant the conclusion that Congress has left a deference warranting gap for the agency to fill, because our cases make clear that other, sometimes context-specific factors will on occasion prove relevant. Instead, according to Justice Breyer, the court looks to several factors other than simple ambiguity to help determine whether Congress left a statutory gap. And to the extent that the two-step process of Chevron ever had purchase, it certainly didn't after the court's 2001 opinion in Meade, which added a somewhat hard to pin down um, so-called step zero of Chevron to the framework. Um, there are other developments and complications, which I'm sure many in the room are familiar with, but in the interest of time, I'll just note that with respect to the stare decisis discussion that we've been having throughout the day, I certainly agree with my, my colleague John Duffy's uh, formal point about when stare decisis applies, but I also want to add the following, which is that when folks say that we must give the approach described in Chevron stare decisis weight, what do they mean exactly? Um, do they mean the simple two-step Chevron or the Chevron as amended by Meade or Justice Breyer's multi-factor approach? Uh, the difficulty is that there's no one Chevron to give stare decisis weights to. Now, some might look at the current case law, just where it stands today, and the reasoning in Chevron and say, it's good enough and we will muddle through. 
Uh, and I don't necessarily mean that in a pejorative way because sometimes that's the best that institutions can do. They just muddle through. Um, but I guess I'm, I'm just not one of those people. Uh, I look at the mismatch between the reasoning in Chevron and the varying approaches uh, to the case uh, and think that this calls for some clarification. And you'll remember that I started off uh, this talk with a postulate from Aristotle about nature abhorring a vacuum. Um, so I did, in fact, in true nerdy fashion, look at book eight of the physics, and here's how he puts the point. Um, he says, this is a quote, in a void, no one could say why a thing once set in motion should stop anywhere. For why should it stop here rather than here? Uh, and the same is true of the application of deference without an underlying justification or theory. Who can say why it should stop, quote, here rather than there? What are the boundaries for applying deference and in what cases? That is what the court in Loper Bright should, in my view, confront. So on this issue, um, I'll bracket constitutional questions, uh, but I'll just say that I'm in basic agreement with the public-private rights framework that was discussed earlier in the day during the first panel, and I think it was by Professor Walker. Uh, happy to talk more about that if that's of interest. I'm in basic agreement with my colleague John Duffy on the Administrative Procedure Act and its import, which is that the statute calls for a form of de novo review by its terms. Uh, and there are various reasons for this. One can look at the language of the statute. Courts shall decide all relevant questions of law, interpret constitutional and statutory provisions, hold unlawful agency action not in accordance with law. Some of these pr uh, provisions were in fact borrowed from prior statutes where the court had construed them and said basically they imply a form of de novo review. Uh, one can look at the legislative and drafting history of the statute, statements by the Act's authors, one of which Professor uh, Duffy quoted. One can look at many um, contemporaneous court decisions. The complication is that at the same time Congress enacted the APA, which was in 1946, right after World War II, the courts were innovating on this question in a series of cases that called for heightened deference to legal questions by blurring the line between legal questions, which would have been addressed de novo, and factual questions which were presumptively deferentially reviewed. And that makes one wonder what's the relationship between these 1940s cases and the APA. So here, one can look at scholarship from the time of the APA's adoption to see that this tension between the 1940s cases and the APA was widely appreciated. Um, for example, with your indulgence, here's a direct quotation from a 1951 article by Louis Jaffe, an eminent mid-20th century administrative law professor. This is a quote. It is thought to be open for decision whether the so-called doctrine of Gray versus Powell, this is one of the 1940s deference cases, has been repealed by the Administrative Procedure Act. Section 10 provides that the court shall decide, quote, all relevant questions of law. In the view of some distinguished authorities, this provision was intended to overcome the doctrine of Gray versus Powell. And I'm gonna skip like a sentence just in the interest of time, but it points to some legislative history. This question must ultimately be faced. It cannot be avoided by labeling those questions as questions of fact. I would argue that insofar as these opinions suggest what I've called heresy, he's referring to an earlier part of the article in which I've pulled this quote, and one quite unnecessary to the decisions in those cases, they should be regarded as disapproved. And then he goes on. Um, Jaffe's position, to be sure, it's complex. I'm definitely skipping over important nuances. 
But he was not alone in wondering how the Administrative Procedure Act interacted with the courts of then contemporaneous 1940s cases. I'll have a more fully fleshed out view, version of this, this argument in my article for the symposium, because the whole, the whole question gets quite in the weeds of uh, legislative history and, and various scholars making different types of arguments. I do think it's interesting that Jaffe spotted the very APA question in 1951 that we're discussing today and said, quote, this question must ultimately be faced. Well, here we are 70 years later, and we are ultimately facing it. And it is interesting to think, what could possibly explain the passage of time? I'm very much open to the views of everyone on this topic, um, and I think part of the story might be um, the administrative common law points that were made by my colleague, Professor Duffy, earlier today. I'll also point out that in the pre-Chevron world, um, as Professor Merrill suggested, the court was notoriously inconsistent at applying deference principles, including in the 1940s, by the way, um, and this was flagged by many commentators during that era. And post-Chevron, as I previously discussed, the court is not struck to one particular consistent method. So just to sum up, in my view, a consistent method would be a good thing. And that is hopefully what the court will aim for in the currently pending litigations. That would, in my view, draw the de novo standard from the APA, but it would temper the standard with certain canons of construction that I think to be a part of de novo review, which defers to contemporaneous and customary agency interpretations. That's part and parcel of de novo review for reasons I'm happy to talk about if um, people are interested in that topic. And it would also allow for Congress to tinker with the defaults of the APA through provisions in organic statutes in some of the ways previously suggested by my colleague, Professor Duffy. Um, this approach would make sense of the overall APA framework and of background law. Uh, I'm happy to discuss circumstances where I do think this, this approach might, in my view, lead to results that are different from those we've seen in recent cases. Um, but I've already gone on long enough, and I'll look forward to what my co-panelists have to say. And here is Jonathan Professor Masur. Thank you. I'm uh, delighted to be here and really appreciative of the organizers for putting together this terrific symposium. I'm going to try to be quite brief by design. I have sort of one central point to make, but I want to offer a little bit of background before it. So before I came to the symposium, uh, I sort of imagined that there was widespread agreement as to the... Um, the, how one would formulate the expertise rationale for Chevron. Um, but one thing I've learned is that a lot of different people have a different conceptions of what that expertise rationale actually means. So I'm going to start with what I think is the most coherent articulation of the expertise rationale. Not mine, uh, of course, but, uh, but what's in the literature. And, and it goes something like this. Um, everyone agrees that if the statute unambiguously uh, has one meaning, that the courts are to give effect to that meaning. Um, and that no deference is afforded. But if the statute is ambiguous and there are multiple possible meanings, that opens up a series of options, a series of options all of which are consistent with the statute. Um, that series of options provides the agency with some sort of policy space. It can choose among a different, uh, uh, it can choose among a varied set of potential policies that it wants to pursue consistent with the statute. If the court, were to use the traditional mechanisms of statutory interpretation to select one of those various interpretations, 
that would eliminate the agency's policy space, that would rob the agency of the opportunity to select among a variety of different policies. And it's the selection of those different policies that is the exercise of the agency's expertise. And so it's the creation of the policy space that is the rationale for giving, uh, for giving you know, the, that it's the creation of the policy space that is animated by the existence of agency expertise. I'm not trying to endorse this view, I'm just trying to describe it. I think it's because of that view of the expertise rationale that for essentially the past 40 years, the canonical understanding of Chevron is that Chevron is a pro-regulatory doctrine, that it leads to more regulation, um, broader regulation, more sweeping regulation. That, I think, was true for many years. The theory here, of course, is that it opens up options for agencies. It gives agencies greater power to exercise choice within those options, and that, as a result, we're going to get more regulation. Chevron itself was decided in the middle of uh, the Ronald Reagan presidency, and that was a point of relatively low levels of regulatory stringency across the United States. And so at that point, operating against a baseline of relatively little regulation in a lot of different spheres, it made sense that providing agencies with more options was quite likely going to lead to more regulation. And that's how Chevron operated also for basically the 28 years between 1988 and 2016 across seven presidential terms. All of those seven presidential terms, including the Bush one and Bush two presidencies, were predominantly sort of pro-regulatory uh, terms. Uh, even both Bushes, in addition to, of course, Clinton and Obama, engaged in quite a lot of regulation across quite a lot of spheres of activity. Um, and the result was that the regulatory landscape in 2016 looked very different than the regulatory landscape in 1984. There was a great deal more regulation and more stringent regulation uh, just about anywhere you looked across the economy. This pattern of Chevron as sort of one-way ratchet, always giving agencies more and more options to regulate more and more, came to a halt in 2017. President Trump, as a candidate, campaigned on repealing a lot of the Obama-era um, regulatory agenda, and that's exactly what he set out to do when he became president. And he used, as a principal mechanism for those repeals, Chevron deference. In a whole slew of regulations, uh, many of them uh, the most significant regulations, but also smaller ones as well, um, Trump used, Trump and Trump's administration, used um, the possibility of reinterpreting statutes more narrowly through Chevron as a mechanism for, uh, for repealing those statutes, uh, for, sorry, repealing those the existing Obama regulations and or in some cases replacing them with uh, something that was less stringent. This happened with regard to um, the salient Obama fuel economy standards. It happened with regard to the mercury and coal-fired powered plant regulations that were uh, the subject of uh, Michigan versus EPA. It happened with regard to the climate change regulation, eventually sort of obviated by West Virginia versus EPA. Uh, it happened across a number of other domains as well. But under Trump, Chevron was a deregulatory tool. So that's really the central point that I want to make, is that in a world um, 
in which we're operating against a baseline of relatively little regulation, Chevron is almost necessarily going to be a pro-regulatory tool. It will encourage, it will give agencies more authority and more power by virtue of giving them more policy space and lead to greater regulation. But in the existing world, in which there is a substantial body of extant regulation, Chevron is really symmetric. In the hands of a pro-regulatory executive, it can be a pro-regulatory tool. In the hands of an anti-regulatory executive, it can be a deregulatory tool. Um, and that, I, that is a point I think that has escaped the canonical wisdom as understood by practitioners, academics, members of government, advocacy groups, and the like. So um, the sort of the bottom, the bottom line conclusion that I want to try to leave you with is that I think that the political valence of a lot of the debates about Chevron is misplaced. Um, I think that there has been to this point a sort of backdrop in which um, uh, sort of pro-regulatory uh, liberals are, uh, are in favor of Chevron and deregulatory conservatives are against it. I think that that is an oversimplification that no longer makes sense uh, in the regulatory landscape in which we are operating. And I guess the other thing I want to say is that I think that the consequences of a repeal of Chevron, and this is maybe to echo some other pan uh, uh, panelists, um, the consequences of a repeal of Chevron will not be as dramatic and especially not as dramatically deregulatory as a lot of people believe that they will. They will probably be destabilizing in the short term, but perhaps stabilizing in the long term as agencies become locked into particular interpretations of statutes and this ability of subsequent presidents to oscillate between greater regulatory stringency and lower uh, regulatory stringency is curtailed. Okay, thank you. Ellie? Thank you, Judge, and thanks both to the Gray Center and to the George Mason Law Review for including me in this symposium. I want to talk a little bit about justifications, and we've heard about justifications for Chevron a little bit on this panel. Um, Aditya is right. Chevron does embrace, as part of why to have its rule of deference, this idea of democratic accountability. That said, at the same time, Chevron does not disavow and seems still to be sympathetic to, at least in the initial opinion, the idea of agency expertise playing a role in why courts should defer to agencies when they interpret statutes. Now, Chevron offers several answers to the why deference question. You know, one of those, of course, being the democratic accountability, another being the agency is charged with the responsibility for administering a given statute, and then this third one that Chevron uses the phrase, the agency, or really the administrator, has, quote, great expertise. Now, the question is what exactly expertise means, and you might think, well, it's expertise, as Jonathan just talks about, and you know, picking a policy among a number of different options. So Chevron creates policy space, and we're just gonna pick one of those policies. But actually, if you look at the case law, in particular in the, in the circuit courts, you'll find that expertise has a variety of meanings, and all of these animate different kinds of cases uh, in different kinds of statutory contexts. So I've identified three in my paper, and I think these three are, are really the main buckets into which you might put uh, the expertise cases when courts applying Chevron say, well, the agency has expertise, thus we defer. One of them is scientific expertise. Now, agencies do science all the time. And we might say, I think quite rightly, that agencies have comparative expertise to judges when it comes to particularized application of scientific methods. So one example might be you know, determining the environmental impact of operating a light water nuclear power plant. 
Another might be using a computer submodel to predict injury to natural resources from certain activities in the context of maybe CERCLA liability. That's one kind of expertise to which courts have said, well, the agency is more expert at least than we are, and thus we're going to defer to the agency's interpretation of the statute. There's another kind of expertise, and this is what Jonathan, I think, was talking a little bit about, was political or policy expertise. This is, you know, we have these policy options, and we're going to choose among them whether massaging different interest groups or thinking what just makes the best sense as a matter of policy. So, you know, you might have the, the classic policy debate whether to stifle innovation to protect consumers. And that's the sort of thing that judges say, well, the agency, maybe for democratic accountability reasons, maybe for communication with the interest groups reasons, right? You know, you would think agencies are communicating a lot more and receiving a lot more input from interest groups than federal courts are. Well, they have a, a policy expertise or a political expertise, and thus we would defer to the agency's interpretation of the statute when it's picking among policy choices. Then there's a third kind of expertise, and this kind of expertise is the one that I think is the most relevant to statutory interpretation and thus should guide how courts, whatever happens to Chevron this term at the court, think about agency expertise in the context of deference when the task before the court is statutory interpretation. This is interpretive expertise, and I think Paul Ray talked a little bit about it in the keynote as well. Interpretive expertise can fall along a few lines, but the two best examples of it are, number one, the agency was involved in drafting the statute, or maybe the agency actually drafted the statute and Congress basically passed what the agency wrote. Um, that means the agency was there at the drafting. The agency can say, oh, you know, this is why this particular choice of words was made. Um, Aditya has done excellent work on contemporaneous interpretations of statutes. You would think that the agency, having been involved in the drafting, you know, right after that statute is passed, may issue some interpretation close in time to the passage of the statute. So that's one way for the agency to obtain interpretive expertise, you might say, with respect to a particular statute. The other is the agency, as a, an expert member of a given industry group or you know, a, a particular industry, uh, is expert in certain terms of art that you or I might read and say, well, I don't know exactly what that means, or I might have an intuition about what that means, but the agencies, you know, let's say it's the FCC, they say, well, you know, no, 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 in the telecoms industry, this particular term means X. And, you know, you can put that in a brief, or you can simply interpret the statute to mean that and put it in, uh, you know, the notice of proposed rulemaking or something, but say, this is a term of art, it is interpreted by experts or industry members to mean this thing, and thus that's what it means, even if your generalist intuition is going to be different. The point I make in my paper is that the only one of those uh, types of expertise that is the most relevant to statutory interpretation is the interpretive expertise. And so when courts are conducting judicial review of agency interpretations, you know, it may well be the case that once the agency gets around to implementing the statute, whatever it means, that the, let's say, the scientific expertise helps it make the right scientific determination or the policy or political expertise helps it make the right interpretation that's gonna make all the interest groups or the citizenry happy. But when it comes to actually determining, you know, what does this word, what does this term, what does this phrase mean, 
the court should look to interpretive expertise. That doesn't mean you defer, right? And I think Justice Breyer, there's, there's an article I cite uh, in my essay where he says, you know, if, if the secretary has a, a special expertise about the statute, well, put it in the brief. Um, and Paul talks a little bit about this as well in the keynote. But, you know, the interpretive expertise is relevant and thus the court should, and maybe this sounds a little bit like Skidmore deference, but the court should accord respect to the agency's interpretation when that agency can justify on a particularized basis to the particular statute well, there's some reason that we would know a little bit better than a generalist, not how to implement the statute, but what the statute means. Next is Professor Victoria Norse. Well, thank you very much. You're going to have to indulge me a bit. Um, I am the vice chair of the United States Civil Rights Commission, and this morning I was talking about um, algorithmic bias in AI, so I'm going to have to shift registers here a bit. <laughs> um, um, but I'll take any questions on that if you have them. No. I am delighted to be here. I'm a huge fan of Jen Mascott. I got the honor of meeting um, Boyden Gray when I was a very young lawyer, and he was unfailingly kind and generous. So thank you for inviting me, George Mason, Jace Lighton, Adam White, Tyler Carter. You did a great job. I run things over at Georgetown. You're doing a lot better uh, when I do my conferences. <clears throat> <laughs> admission against interest. <laughs> it is an admission. Well, my husband teaches uh, nuclear security at George Mason to graduate students. So, um, my contribution here is a little bit different than the experts on this panel, who many of their comments I agree with, frankly. Um, but I study interpretation. And so I'm going to take the conversation up to a different level. I fully believe that the court will, in fact, make major changes in Chevron. Um, and why do I believe that? Because I have spent the last few years reading everything the Supreme Court has ever written for something that I call the Supreme Court Interpretation Lab that includes Kevin Tobia, Neil Sukatme, who's an economist, patent lawyer, uh, Jonathan, and some other folks. And we're building big data and a lot of new tools to look at text. Because that is what you do if you uh, teach about interpretation, whether it's about the Constitution or about statutes. Um, <laughs> So, what I want to talk to you about is thinking about Chevron in a broader interpretive landscape. I don't believe that if Chevron goes, the administrative state will suffer. And I'm sorry to say that Tom Merrill's over there. I'm a huge fan. Um, I think that it will reverse precedent in a really fairly disruptive way. There will be a lot of memos written in general counsel's offices. Um, you know, I joke that it's a full employment bill for lawyers, but you know. I do think that, um, because the administrative is sort of resilient, you can think about it with this metaphor because my husband works in political military, uh, it's like you know, taking an AK-47, which is a powerful weapon, so Chevron's powerful, but it's shooting at the Pentagon, it's not going to get rid of the Pentagon. The FDA will operate, no one will operate, we'll know about the weather, we'll know about hurricanes, you know, the Defense Department will be there. Um, so will the Federal Reserve. Uh, if you really want to talk about the danger there, I think you have to move into the questions of removal and appointment and separation of powers, which also I'm happy to discuss, but it's a different topic. So to my paper, my fear is that we're moving beyond the Scalia age. And I have both admired and criticized Justice Scalia. I admired him for the zeal and the strength of his vision for text. Um, I spend most of my life talking about textualism. When I left the White House, they gave me a little mug. It's all about textualism, because I got some people to actually read some statutes. But I fear that we are moving beyond the Scalia era, and that Chevron and, and the campaign against Chevron, or the arguments against Chevron, which 
you know, the rule of law arguments are pretty good. Is, is leading us into an era that Justice Scalia would not approve of, what he called um, strict construction, which is a degraded form of textualism. So let me explain that a little bit. Uh, I believe that Justice Barrett, um, who and I have had the pleasure of discussing some things about this with, believes that a judicial thumb on the scale one way or the other, she's talked about this in Biden versus Nebraska, and her concurrence is not textualism. And so I agree as well. So I'm doing some empirical work. It's not complete. Um, it's not even complete in my symposium proposal. But I do worry about the following thing. that. To try to explain the major questions doctrine, Chevron, and what I see in all the interpretive cases, constitutional and statutory, is a shift toward a thumb on the scale to narrow statutory interpretations. And what I mean by that is if you put one interpretation against the other, which one will accept the reach of law more or less? And it's a little bit difficult to define that. But what I find is there's a, a statistically significant connection between these narrowing interpretations. And that is consistent with uh, a, a notion of viewing Chevron as a way to push back on the administrative state. It's also consistent with the major questions doctrine as pushing back on the administrative state. Now, as I said, I don't think any of these things are actually going to get rid of the administrative state because the courts have a relatively small role to play, in my opinion. Nevertheless, um, I am worried about this because this really is something that, that you need to pay attention to. Um, it opens up a whole, for those of you who are textualists, it opens up a whole set of arguments by those who would say, you know, we're not looking, they're not looking at the best meaning of the statute in which we have to define what is best, and I'll talk about that in a little minute. But what is the narrowest? And so here's an example. Healthcare statute says you can regulate for health or sanitation, and the judge picks sanitation. And I'm sure Judge Radler would not accept that interpretation. That is not textualism. And no one who studies it thinks that is. But we have seen some of that happen. And so that is my cautionary tale. I also think it's a cautionary tale because you're asking every agency lawyer in Washington is a vast apparatus to do something called the best interpretation of the law. And that entails two prior questions. I, too, wanted to be a philosopher, but I didn't get that far. And I won't quote Aristotle, but I'll just ask you to think carefully about what the term best means. Best to whom? Justice Barrett and I dis disagree. She thinks I'm a congressional insider because I work for Congress as a lawyer. Uh, she wants to talk to ordinary people. That's fine, but you have to specify that because technical meaning is often particularly in agencies, the real core of what they're doing, not ordinary meaning. You also have to decide what's your metric, what's your norm about what is the best meaning. You could have a case that said, for example, ruling for defendants is always best meaning, <laughs> right? No one thinks that's correct. But I ask you to do that because I think we're at, a, at an inflection point where those who are, are the adherents of Justice Scalia must consider uh, questions about whether the court, the current court, um, is in fact honoring his legacy. Thank you very much. So let me pose a question to each of you that the question to whom the que question, the answer um, the, to the, the person to whom the question is posed can answer and then maybe the rest of you can contribute a little bit. Aditya, I'll start with you. Uh, in your amicus brief that you filed with the court in the Loper case, you talked a lot about the interaction between the APA and Chevron. Do you want to expand on that a little bit? 
Uh, sure, I suppose I should have actually mentioned that in my opening rem remarks to the extent that anyone might think that I'm biased. because well, I'm, I'm, I'm here for you. I filed, I filed the brief, but in my defense, it was in, in support of neither party, so I'm completely unbiased here on this topic. <laughs> so uh, what's the relationship between the APA and, um, and Chevron? Um, this is a topic that we've heard about from previous panels, um, and uh, I, I, I mentioned some of the, the text that is that is in the statute that um, has, I think, for a long period of time, people have tended to think that it calls for some form of de novo review, just the, the text itself. And I flagged a, a subclause within the statute about not in accordance with law, and this is going to be a por portion of my um, symposium submission, that that portion of the, the statute was added along with some other portions at, at sort of a later drafting stage. And um, that language is actually copied from prior statutes, including, for example, the Longshoreman and Harbor Workers' Compensation Act, which is interpreted in famous cases like Quill versus Benson. And the language is actually discussed in both Chief Justice Hughes's majority opinion and Justice Brandeis's dissent. You know, we're never gonna find in the legislative history a remark by somebody or a committee print saying, when the court, 38 years from now, decides the Chevron case, we disagree with that case. But look, all of the, um, to my mind, uh, contemporaneous uh, understanding in Congress tends to suggest some form of de novo review. But there is this complication, which is that cases are being decided at exactly the same time. And it's in, the complication increases because Chevron, uh, sorry, excuse me, the APA had a, um, a date on which it was supposed to take effect, and there were disagreements about which parts of the statute would take effect on which dates. So um, there was a little bit of a lag period during which the APA would not have applied to some of the court's, uh, court's cases. Um, so these cases from the 1940s, you might think of them as proto-Chevrons, like uh, you know, antecedents to Chevron. And that, I think, is the question that confronts the court. How do the cases uh, interact with the statute? And I'll just add one final data point on this, uh, on this topic, because I mentioned the contemporaneous and customary interpretation canons. To be sure, they're not discussed in the legislative history, just because you don't expect that type of in-the-weeds detail from um, members of Congress or committee prints. But, um, if, for example, in 1942, Erwin Griswold, who later becomes the dean of Harvard Law School and at the time is a professor at Harvard, writes a, uh, an article on this topic, and the topic is addressing uh, when do uh, agencies, specifically the Treasury Department, in the case of the article, get deference. And this is how he explains um, the area of law circa 1942. He says if they're long-continued or um, contemporaneous-style uh, interpretations. Uh, I want to say that the article is called A Summary of the Regulations Problem, so you could look it up if you're interested in this topic. Um, so there you go. I mean, um, I, I might have reiterated some of the same themes that I'd earlier touched upon, but gone into a little bit more detail. I think that basically the question is, the statute's enacted in 1946, and there's an interaction between the statute and what is happening in the court at that time. Okay, uh, Ellie, let me ask you, uh, so we're talking about who interprets statutes. Obviously, we can start with the Constitution. Um, is there anything you see in the original understanding of Article 3 uh, or Article 1 that speaks directly to the issue? Um, uh, or any other sort of constitutional points you, you want to raise? Um, 
because we haven't really touched on, on that too much? Yeah, and, and I think for those interested in the constitutional issue, I would point you to page 15 of Adich's brief, where I think you take the position, you know, maybe the APA says no deference, but we don't find that in Article 3. So I think for Article 3 purposes, you know, I, when we talk about interpretation of statutes, it's generally thought to be a judicial duty. Yes and no. The executive interprets statutes all the time. And it is, I think, an adjunct to the executive power to interpret statutes to carry out the business of the executive branch. So there really is no constitutional problem with the president interpreting a statute. In fact, the president, when the president interprets a statute, that statutory interpretation is going to have controlling weight among those in the executive branch who are interpreting, you know, who are going and doing the things pursuant to that interpretation of the statute that you would normally expect the executive branch to do. The question comes when there is a particular case in a particular court that concerns that interpretation of the statute. So you might say, well, okay, now we're in the realm of the judicial power. We've moved out of you know, Article II and whether you're a unitary executive theorist and you say, well, you know, there's the president and that those interpretations are binding or maybe you take a different view, but we've now moved out of Article II. It's not just the executive branch is doing stuff pursuant to the president's or an administrator's directions. We're now before a court. That starts to get a little closer, I think, to the line of Article 3 has something to say about this. And my view is Article 3 can't permit it to be that once you go into court as to a particular case, the executive's determination of what a statute means is controlling. Whatever the text of the APA says, right, it's against this constitutional backdrop. But that's difficult for a few reasons. So number one, and, and teacher, please, if I'm misinterpreting your argument in the amicus brief, you know, let me know. But my understanding is that if you have a greater power, and it includes the lesser power argument, that if Congress can strip jurisdiction of federal courts as to particular cases, it can prescribe a rule as to the deference to which uh, a court is to give the executive branch as to a particular interpretation. I'm a little skeptical of that because, at least in my view, it seems to me more like an on and off switch, right? You can strip the jurisdiction, but once you have granted jurisdiction, you know, there are limitations in Article 3 on, you know, prescribing the particular rule of decision. Uh, and, the, you know, there's federal courts doctrines on this as well. Um, other problems, I think maybe a little more practical. There's the issue of, say, nationwide injunctions and, and disuniformity among the circuits, right? At least with Chevron, we say, well, there's going to be one interpretation of the statute. That's the executives. And you know, the unfortunate thing, I think, about Article 3 is there's all these circuits, and the circuits sometimes disagree. And that presents complications, particularly for regulated parties, where you, know, you might have a different rule, depending whether you're in California or Texas, as to what law am I supposed to follow. You might have issues with you know, agency non-acquiescence in particular uh, regulatory proceedings, because well, when we're in the Ninth Circuit, the regulation means this, but when we're in the Fifth Circuit, the regulation means something else. We'll at least continue to apply it in the Ninth Circuit. I think the best response is that scheme is basically contemplated by Article 3 anyway, and you still have the Supreme Court to mediate among the disputes and statutory 
uh, language that the circuits have. Circuit splits happen all the time. But I think there is a legitimate constitutional case, aside from, you know, there's a delegation issue too, right? Do, you know, do we say Congress has delegated the interpretive authority to the executive, and is that a, a delegation of a particular kind of, we might call it judicial power. But I think the best way to think about even that issue is this idea of there's a difference between interpreting statutes in the abstract and then what do we do with that interpretation as to a particular case once you get the judicial power involved. So uh, here's the way that I think about this set of issues which overlap uh, the the Article 3 issue and the due process issue. Uh, so first of all, uh, it, it is interesting to me that the, uh, the general point that uh, Article 3 or the due process clause requires de novo review of legal questions is in fact a uh, long-standing argument that had been made, um, for example, by Justice Brandeis in I want to say his concurring opinion in St. Joseph's Stockyards. This might be like 1936, 37, sometime around that period. So like six, seven years before the passage of the APA, there's still an argument floating out there that um, the judicial power and the due process clause requires de novo review of all legal questions. Um, having said that, um, you know, I'm skeptical of the argument applying in all instances of litigation. And I think Professor Walker made some of the points earlier in the day, uh, but, um, and, and Ellie touched upon some of the points right now. The gist of it is that it was widely acknowledged and understood that some determinations by agencies uh, could be cut off from further judicial review. That basically there would be preclusion of further judicial review um, for a long period of time um, during the 19th century. And later on, some of the judicial review occurred through what's known as the writ of mandamus, along which uh, was a deferential standard of review. So this may reflect some of my methodological priors because I'm looking at the practice um, of, of that type of preclusion or that type of mandamus review and saying, well, where were the arguments that this violated the judicial power or due process? Those are terms that don't define themselves. We just have to understand them uh, against the backdrop of practice. And then if you take the view that uh, there are circumstances in which Congress can provide for a deferential standard or, uh, or for preclusion, you, you might ask the question, well, what's the line? Is, is there some line where de novo review is required? And here I have a reductio that I, that I mentioned uh, and will mention in my class, and, and this is the reductio, which is that what if Congress were to say Department of Justice determinations were um, uh, binding in criminal cases, in capital cases? You know, that would be something that I think would be jarring for most everybody in the room, uh, although I'm happy to hear arguments to the contrary if, if you find that to be perfectly acceptable. Um, if you think that that is problematic, then you want to know what the dividing line is. And here, um, the way that I think about it is through the lens of the public-private rights doctrine, which is uh, a, a doctrine that is before the court in another case this term. Uh, conceivably, we'll have more elaboration on the line there. I understand there are line drawing problems, but in that the context of those cases, um, the, the court has said that there are certain um, 
there's a certain constitutional minimum of judicial review that is required in private rights cases, however, however defined. And I would think that the same would be um, applicable um, here in this context, which addresses legal issues. The public private rights cases tend to arrive, arise with respect to factual issues. Okay, all that is to say that I don't have a firm position on this public private rights line with respect to Loper and Relentless, but rather I think that before addressing the Article 3 and due process questions, the court would have to confront this line and this question, the line drawing, um, and that's what I think um, would be required before there was a constitutional holding. Um, I guess I want to say about both the due process and the Article 3 arguments, I think that these arguments are um, have very, very sweeping implications, and I would like to know from proponents of those arguments, maybe some of whom are in the room, uh, if they're willing to bite the bullet on all of those, those implications or if they think that there is some distinguishing characteristic. On the due process argument, um, you know, there are a lot of canons of construction, just to name a small part of the world of law, and Chevron is probably uh, you know, plausibly thought of as a type of canon of construction. A lot of canons of construction that put a, fin a, a figure on the scale on behalf of one party or the other. Uh, just to take the flip side of Aditya's um, example, the rule of lenity is one of them in criminal, criminal law. Um, the rule in uh, contract interpretation that contracts are to be construed against the drafter is another one of them. And so I guess I want you to know whether, um, whether the claim is that the due process clause uh, takes all of those canons of uh, construction and many, many others and lots of other things that have the same effect and makes them all unconstitutional um, despite the sort of very uh, obvious and well-enumerated reasons for having those types of canons in the first place. And on the Article 3 point, there are a lot of statutes that confer sort of deferential authority of a variety of types to executive branch actors. So, uh, for instance, there's a statute about national emergencies, which describes uh, the characteristics of a national emergency and then gives the president the power to declare something to be or not be a national emergency with legal consequences. And I think it would be quite peculiar if we said that Article 3 demands that the president's uh, determination of whether something does or does not constitute a national emergency must be reviewed by the courts de novo. Uh, and that despite that the fact that the statute quite plainly tries to give that uh, decision to the president, um, that the courts cannot be cut out of the equation in that way. Sort of more broadly, you know, whatever we might think of uh, the judicial power, you know, the sort of plainest conception of it in this world of statutory interpretation, including by Chevron opponents, has been that the courts are just trying to give effect to the law as Congress has written it, and that uh, Chevron deference uh, takes the takes the ball out of Congress's court. Well, if Congress has written the law, we could disagree about what are the circumstances or how clear Congress has to be to be um, handing uh, some grant of deference to the executive branch. But if Congress has written the law so as to give deference to the executive, uh, Maybe it, it seemed to further some notion of Article 3, some notion of Article 3 of uh, uh, a judicial role that cannot be usurped to, um, to reject that type of deference, but it would seem very much in tension with an even more core notion of Article 3 in the world of statutes in which the courts are meant to give effect to uh, what Congress, the law that Congress has actually written down to say that Congress cannot uh, afford the executive deference. Yeah, I just want to follow up a little bit on that with a few facts that you might not know. Congress passes uh, canons of interpretation all the time, but you never see them in the U.S. Code because the revisers put them in the notes. There are thousands of them. And uh, there's a law review article by a librarian, Yale, I think, who's actually 
discovered these. Um, Congress clearly believes that it is doing that, and there are many rule of law justifications for using canons. And what are the rule of law justifications? And this is a big problem for textualists. Justice Barrett goes back and forth on this. She's the most sophisticated on this. But I see it a slightly different way when Congress does this. It's actually giving the courts uh, some help. Because life, this is not policy space. I mean, I know political scientists talk about policy spaces, and, and I appreciate that with Professor Mazur talking about that. But, you know, let's get down to brass tacks. Life is complex. Even in something very simple, you will have a core of a statute in a penumbra, no vehicles in the park. Everyone believes that it covers cars, right? But do we believe it covers wheelbarrows, bikes, mopeds, electric bicycles? All the kinds of little, you know, uh, new machines that are zipping across the mall. Uh, so there's always a penumbra, and it's not simply because the agency wants to do a Democratic or a Republican thing. It's also not because interest groups are telling them what to do, because by the way, most of us in Washington who get things done know that interest groups kill deals, they don't enact them. But it's because life gives them choices, and I'm sure the judge knows this. Every judge knows the difficulties of applying things in new circumstances. The internet and AI, new technology. This is a persistent factor that causes a, a set of options that are all reasonable. And in that case, the question is how you're going to make a judgment. And canons actually help judges and agencies actually call the doubts in one way or another. And so I think they should get actually special deference. Of course, I am a um, departmentalist. I think all you're never going to get agencies not to interpret statutes. They do it every day. How many lawyers probably interpret statutes? I don't know, probably thousands, tens of thousands. Uh, Congress has to interpret statutes because they have to decide where a statute fits. Um, the question is how you coordinate them and how you liquidate the meaning in any consistent way. And so, in my view, canons actually that Congress enumerates is something that you should be deferential to. And that's not inconsistent with the judicial power. Uh, Victoria, I can go back to you. So you made the point that you didn't think, you're, you're not sure that whatever happens in, in the follow-on cases of Chevron will necessarily impact uh, how much change? And I don't know if your is your point that the agencies will tend to just do what they were doing, or is this a reflection also on the courts? Um, is there any thought that judges currently, even though step two requires them mm -hmm. to, um, to defer to agencies, that they're doing a lot of work in step one to reach a result they want to reach? Mm -hmm. Or if we change the law and make it more of de novo review, that judges will still sort of say this is complicated uh, and I'm just going to defer to what the effect going to, to defer to an agency inclusion. Is, is that part of your calculation? Or? Yeah, I mean, part of it is judicial capacity. So um, I was very much influenced by a mentor um, from my first law school, University of Wisconsin. I'm an economist named Neil commissar. And he believes that all, all uh, constitutional cases and all statutory cases are institutional choices. You're ultimately trying to decide who decides, right? Unfortunately, because that it describes almost every case, it doesn't help you decide any particular case. So the judge is faced with the question is, when, when am I going to dig into that thousand-page record or not? And Chevron has been easy for judges in that respect, and it's easy. And I heard some sort of interesting uh, examples of how the agency lawyer said, oh, well, I can choose to uh, our lunchtime speaker. And I was like, hmm, I don't know if that's so good. Um, because that's not how I see Chevron. I thought of it as a tool for judges to be deferential to um, the accountability of the executive branch. And I understand we've moved from accountability to, oh, let's not pawn off that to a political branch. But I do think the judicial capacity to control the 
you know, judges, you're a small, hearty, brilliant band, band of brothers and sisters, but the administrative apparatus is huge, and it affects a vast set of activities that we all engage in every day. And so I worry that the judges are imagining that they're going to have more of a view than they do. If you really want to control the administrative state, it seems to me that you have to elect someone who will control the administrative state. As Professor Mazur said, Chevron itself can be quite neutral depending upon whether your president is pro-regulatory or anti-regulatory. And in my view, most presidents are both pro and anti. <laughs> they have different policy uh, preferences. So I think, you know, I don't, you know, I know that some people, you know, sort of in the liberal crowd say, oh, why shouldn't you support Chevron? Well, I am a statutory interpretation person. I do believe trying to get the best answer. I am just less confident that most cases that actually get into court and then are not settled are actually the cases where you can find the best interpretation. And I don't mind telling agency lawyers. Agency law is ossified. It's old. Um, there's not enough throughput, you know, in agency law. Um, and so I don't have any problem with telling them to read the statute, you know, <laughs> read the statute. But I don't think that this alone, and that's why it's not alone, and that was the point of my talk, which is to say, I don't think you should look at Chevron alone. I think if you really want to get a sense of what's going on is it's not Chevron, it's the major questions doctrine. It's, you know, pushback politically against the administrative state, as well as relatively more narrowing interpretations of statutes. Yeah, somebody want to push back? You're looking at me. I'm <laughs> you know, I think the point about uh, what are judges exactly going to do if Chevron is overruled, if they have to go and sift through, maybe it's not in a thousand page record of you know, an agency proceeding, but they have to sift through you know, all these materials of how exactly do we interpret this particular term, which may include reference to you know, legislative history actually can be used sometimes by textualists to understand if uh, there's a particular term, how is it used in context. There are other, of course, contextual clues that uh, judges might have to use. I think Victoria's point is an excellent one, that there are resource constraint issues if we say to judges, you know, you have to interpret the wide panoply of, of statutes that ordinarily you might say, well, we're just going to defer. I, I'd point folks to a great essay that uh, Judge Kethledge did in the Vanderbilt Law Review on Bonk, uh, where he likens the process of statutory interpretation for judges in agency cases to uh, hunting grouse or partridge. And he says, you know, it's, it's actually quite easy to just go down one path where uh, all the undergrowth is cleared, as opposed to sifting through the undergrowth yourself. Nevertheless, it's important to sift through undergrowth. The countervailing you know, practical point about, well, that's a lot for judges to do, and perhaps judges don't want to do that, um, is probably bolstered by the fact that today, the major questions doctrine operating um, as King v. Burwell understands it as a carve-out for the Chevron cases, actually takes a good number of the cases off the Chevron docket in which the judges might be the most excited about going through that statute and digging through to try to figure out exactly what the meaning is, the sort of cases that you might think, uh, if judges are thinking you know, practically about, well, what's the best rule, those are the cases they probably would want to do all the work on the most. Um, 
think part of this is we don't know how far the major questions doctrine expands. It may be that you know economically and politically significant rules or regulations is actually a, a smaller subset or a truly extraordinary number of cases or not. Um, but the resource constraint point is one that I think is going to deserve significant attention both in thinking about well, what is the consequence of uh, departing from Chevron's rule and also are there things that the bar and maybe Congress needs to do to better equip judges with the resources to undertake, you know, or maybe we'd say the judiciary generally, with the resources to undertake rigorous, you might call it relentless, based on the eponymous case name uh, <laughs> this term, review of statutes that uh, the agencies have interpreted. But it's, it's a difficult question. It's one that I think uh, judges are going to be faced with if Chevron is departed from. So this is actually the case that I was thinking of, um, where uh, potentially, potentially, if if the court were to move, uh, you know, in a uh, direction closer to my view uh, in in Loper Bright, uh, th there might be a different outcome. And, and as I was speaking, I, I was thinking of of this case, um, even though. You know, potentially people in the room will know the particulars of the statutory scheme more and say uh, it doesn't um, actually turn out differently. In the case of Brand X, that's the case that I was thinking of, so many in the room will know it. But if I start by zooming out, I think that those cases where everybody agrees under the Chevron framework, Congress has directly spoken to an issue of what we might call Chevron step one cases, they're coming out the same way, right? Whatever the court does in this universe. And then um, we had previous panel discussions on Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence in Kaiser versus Wilkie that said, well, if the term that's used in the statute is so uh, general that it really is not subject to interpretation, terms like reasonable, permissible, things of that nature, then presumptively that's subject to arbitrary and capricious review. Those cases are also not coming out differently, and that does pose the line drawing problem then between statutory interpretation and arbitrary and capricious review that Professor Bressman talked about earlier today. But um, setting that to one side, the cases that are affected are those cases where one might say there's a best answer, potentially a best answer, but there are permissible alternatives. And Brand X is sort of the exemplar case to me of that universe, and that's a case in which there was a prior Court of Appeals, Ninth Circuit opinion, that it held that cable companies selling broadband internet service, um, that they uh, provide telecommunication services, hence they're uh, subject to mandatory common carrier regulation under the Communications Act, and the agency had flipped back and forth, and those of you who are following the agency know that it's flipped again on this question, um, and, and the court in Brand X said, well, even though there was a prior Article Three holding that this was the best interpretation, now granted, there's the, the, in that case, there's a complication that it was a Ninth Circuit holding that maybe maybe was not correct, um, and we could debate that. Just but that would be a debate about telecommunications law and what what the Communications Act means. Um, but even though there was that type of holding. Um, a holding on the best interpretation doesn't preclude an agency from adopting a permissible alternative. So if we were to agree with the Ninth Circuit, the telecommunication service provision was best interpreted as the Ninth Circuit did, then I think Brandex comes out differently and that's a case that concretely, potentially, potentially comes out in a different way. 
I just want to say something quickly about sort of this original question of what what the world will look like if Chevron is repealed, what will courts be doing? Um, I, I do not think that as a matter of their statutory interpretation exercises, courts will be scouring uh, multi-thousand page administrative records regarding agencies. I think that they'll be using the ordinary tools of statutory interpretation, which is what Chevron tells them to do at step one in the first place. If there are judges who are especially pragmatic or especially consequentialist, they might sort of take a little peek ahead to um, exactly what that uh, agency record looks like. But for the most part, they'll be looking at text and context and structure, maybe at legislative history, depending on the judge, maybe trying to define the purposes behind the statute, depending on the judge. But by and large, the sort of typical practice of statutory interpretation. But that's not to say that judges aren't looking at those materials anyway. They are. It's just they're doing it as a matter of arbitrary and capricious review, hard look review. That's where that is taking place. And, some, and sometimes, in some courts, in some places, it takes place with uh, particular stringency. Courts give a really hard look at what the agency has done. Um, other times, it takes place uh, with a much more sort of lenient and deferential eye. And I would, um, I would sort of shout out um, the work of a future panelist, uh, Caroline Seacote, on this point, who I think has done a really nice job of uh, sort of illustrating when and where um, the courts are more and less stringent with regard to the rationales for agency action, whether those rationales make sense. I think the right way to think about Chevron, though, is if, if, you, if we had a regulation that was otherwise going to pass arbitrary and capricious review, it was going to pass hard look review, because what the agency did was sensible, made sense uh, as a policy, was based on sound reasoning, and so forth. And it was one of many or several permissible constructions of the statute. Should the courts nonetheless be striking that policy down if it doesn't fit the best interpretation of the statute? That, I think, is, um, is uh, those are the stakes presented most clearly by Loper. I just want to take two, two quick questions. One, uh, two quick points on this. One, I think what judges are going to do is they are going to use the same tools. Justice Scalia loved Chevron. He expanded Chevron. Uh, and that's why I'm saying something new might be going on uh, with this pushback. Um, so I think you can use all the tools you have for statutory interpretation. Um, and I don't think they're going to be looking in records, as Professor Mazur said, to find that meaning. Now, I do think what's going to happen, and this is suggested by Professor Bamzai's remarks, which is you're going to see shifts from the meaning of the statute to a field of statutory application, from law to fact, if it's hard. Because these do, in practice, if you ask, I mean, I'd ask Judge Riedler here, um, you ask judges about this, and they say, well, I think of that as a problem not of the meaning of vehicle, but of its application in this certain circumstance. And so when judges are uncertain about the bubble concept, whatever, they'll recharacterize it to some extent as not a question of the statutory interpretation, but as a question of fact um, when there is uncertainty in that area. Um, and that is in of itself an interesting will be an interesting phenomenon. It'll make judges in the lower court's lives, I think, a lot more difficult, in the district court's lives more difficult. But there you go. Uh, Jonathan, can I go back to you? Do you see um, a larger trend here with, uh, say, Kaiser, with the development of the major questions doctrine and what that portends maybe for the future of administrative law and regulation? And I was just going to reemphasize a point you made earlier, which maybe you want to expand on, which is that doing away with Chevron may, might also make it more difficult to deregulate, so for administrations that want to deregulate, yes. that this would in some ways be a barrier to doing so? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, right, I, I think that it's not, um, you know, it doesn't, doesn't take uh, uh, a, a, 
an administrative law expert, self-proclaimed or otherwise, um, to notice that the court has issued a lot of decisions across a lot of different policy areas that um, at least look on their faces if they are cutting back on the authority of federal administrative agencies in one way or another. The Major Questions Doctrine is probably the most famous of these. Um, the Spending Clause line of cases uh, involving the CFPB case that was argued two weeks ago I think is another extremely sort of important uh, potential line of cases, though it looks like the court may uphold the constitutionality of the CFPB there. Um, Victoria mentioned earlier the Appointments and Removal Clause cases. Those are especially important as well. And I think that all of these things and Chevron get sort of lumped together as court goes after administrative state. Um, and I guess part of the point that I want to make is that I think that the rest of those doctrines are much more sort of unidirectional in the sense of um, having the net effect of curbing agencies' uh, authority to regulate and the sort of expansiveness or stringency of the territory that they can uh, take up with their regulation, whereas Chevron is much more equivocal, much more symmetric along those lines. So, I mean, I just... Uh, it's obviously a debate for, for another moment, but I do think, for we example... Have, we have a minute, so you can get your best, get your best shot. <laughs> what other moment? <laughs> what are but we waiting for? The, uh, the removal cases, for example, did allow President Biden to, um, to appoint a new head of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, as well as a new head of the uh, Social Security Administration. So, you know, in some ways, um, they also could cut in different directions. I agree with that, actually, just because, although potentially they're operating on what I think is not a formal separation of powers, but a functional separation of powers bottle that's, that's embedded in their formal categories. And that's why I find it very uncertain to me about what they're going to do. That uncertainty causes a certain amount of disruption. It's difficult for the White House Counsel's Office to decide who can you remove and who, who you can't. Because now CELA law has been amended by Collins and Arthrex and one's a patent case. <laughs> no one wants to read the patent case. How dare you. <laughs> um, it's quite uncertain. We're a textbook author. so Yeah, I know. He does. Yes, he does. Uh, I, but I also sure think the that they don't... There's a faction on the court, including the Chief Justice, who has, has goes with the principle but did not do the most extreme remedy. Let's just put it that way. So I don't see them as being extremely disruptive, but they are uncertain. Just, last, last comment. Okay, sorry, just to, just to um, very quickly about uh, the point that DT made about the, the appointment of the new S a CFPB uh, head. I mean, I think that, that I think that's, that's you know, unquestionably correct in a static sense. Like at any given moment, given the structure we have currently, um, if a president can all of a sudden remove a head and replace it with their own head, that might have any sorts of consequences depending on who the president is and what their regulatory agenda is. I think it's really in a, in a dynamic sense in which decisions like that um, have a sort of anti-agency effect overall because there are probably a lot of agencies that would not exist and do not make sense if they can't be politically insulated. The Federal Elections Commission, I would submit, is one of those agencies. The Federal Reserve is plausibly one of those agencies as well. Um, and so if moving forward, you know, I don't know what the world of you know, future agencies might bring, uh, and maybe we will have no more agencies at all. There's no need for any further agencies going forward. But if we were to look backwards, if those cases had been decided uh, 200 years ago before these agencies were created, and Congress understood that every time they made an agency, they had to make, uh, they had to place that agency fully under presidential control, and they could not insulate the head of that agency or heads of that agency um, with a removal protections, probably our agency landscape would look a lot different and in many cases a lot smaller. 
Great. Uh, please join me in thanking our panelists. This was terrific. This has been an episode of Gray Matters. If you enjoyed this discussion, check out all of our episodes on our website at administrativestate.gmu.edu. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Adlaw Center.